1968, a German mathematician named Dietrich Brace was working on traffic modeling when he realized that in some cases, adding a new road or additional lane to a congested street or highway can actually increase the amount of congestion on that street or highway. This is somewhat counterintuitive because lanes and additional roads are generally added to reduce congestion, to increase the number of available channels leading between endpoints. But in his modeling, he found that this wasn't always the case. There's an element here of what in economics is called Jevons' paradox, which says, at times, if you increase the efficiency with which a resource is used, whether through technological innovation or through some kind of government policy, this can counterintuitively lead to more consumption of that resource, because in its new efficient state, it's even more useful, which can then increase demand. This is a perennial concern when it comes to electricity and fuel usage, because as we increase the energy efficiency of cars and appliances, there's a chance folks will end up using more energy instead of less, because they'll drive more, or buy more appliances, or use the appliances they have at higher power levels. Fuel is cheap. Electricity is cheap. So why not use more of it? The best of intentions, then, can lead to the opposite intended outcomes, not because pursuing efficiency is bad, but because efficiency can sometimes lead to higher demand. The same is sometimes true on roads, it would seem. If another lane is added to a busy highway, more people may decide to use that highway, even when previously they might have opted for surface streets or to take some other mode of transportation because the highway was known for its horrible traffic, but now has this additional lane. And that same decision to take the highway by many people can lead to more traffic than before, despite the additional lane, or rather because of it. Also counterintuitively, you can sometimes improve traffic conditions by removing roads and lanes. This has been documented around the world from South Korea to New York to Paris. Planners and transportation officials are tasked with reducing congestion in heavily trafficked parts of the city and find that by removing lanes on larger thoroughfares, and in some cases, removing one or several entire roads or streets for automobile use, they're able to improve traffic flow. In most cases, this seems to be the consequence of adjusting demand in the other direction. People are aware there are fewer lanes or roads available, and they either don't take superfluous trips, or they carpool or walk or bike or take mass transit. A lot of very fancy and sophisticated science goes into modeling traffic flow. There are several common models used today, but even big expensive supercomputers have trouble with optimization in some cases, as there are just so many variables influencing the eventual outcome, and any one model is unlikely to capture enough of them with sufficiently detailed resolution to accurately and consistently forecast what will happen where and how these happenings, this congestion, might be ameliorated. Interestingly, new data from the TomTom Traffic Index suggests that while rush hour traffic has eased in many cities over the past two years as the pandemic has adjusted work and living habits and schedules, it hasn't really reduced the amount of traffic. It's just spread it out throughout the day. 
Consequently, many big cities in particular no longer have a 5 p.m. rush hour. They have late morning rush hour at around 11, a moderate rush hour beginning around 3, and in some cases a sort of continuous rush hour that never ceases because of inefficient traffic infrastructure. Folks in Minneapolis spent an average of 23 hours in traffic in 2021, nearly a full day out of their year, while folks in Atlanta, Tampa, and Washington, D.C. lost about two days to traffic on average. People in New York City lost more than three days. And going international, people in Istanbul lost about 142 hours, which is not quite six days, in traffic on average in 2021. And again, that's in traffic that is down at peak hours by 31% and down overall by about 14% compared to 2019 numbers in North America. It's just more spread out and thus pervasive now, so each trip is kind of a mini rush hour. What I'd like to talk about today is another pandemic-era car-related shift and what changes might be on the horizon to account for it. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Pedestrian Deaths Spike in U.S. as Reckless Driving Surges. New projections for the first nine months of 2021 show that there were about 31,720 car crash deaths in the U.S. during that part of that year and that's up 12% from the first nine months of 2020. And 2020 had its own surge in car-related deaths, with 42,060 deaths across the whole 12 months of the year, up from 39,107 in 2019. And that's despite, by the way, a significant decrease in miles traveled by car in the U.S. in 2020 because of the pandemic. About 13% fewer miles were driven, and still we see this significant spike in car deaths. Now I should note that these are not all-time high numbers. There were tens of thousands more car-related deaths each year back in the 1960s and 70s, peaking in the 1980s when mid-decade seatbelt wearing was made legally mandatory, and seatbelts were legally required to be included in cars from 1968 onward all of which contributed to a big dip in deaths from car crashes and accidents heading into the 1990s. That said, although each and every one of these deaths is still a tragedy, the overall numbers have been much better since the turn of the century, especially considering how much more we're driving. And this is true globally, but especially true in the car-centric United States. The majority of the U.S. landmass isn't really traversable, not conveniently anyway, without a vehicle. And though some cities and even some towns have solid mass transit systems and other infrastructure that make it easy and feasible for folks to get around on foot or using bikes, much of the country outside the big cities and parts of university towns tend to require a personal vehicle of some kind. Thus, a lot more driving happens here per person per year compared to other countries. About four and a quarter percent of the total global population lives in the United States, and about 21 percent 
of all the cars in the world are owned by Americans. As of early 2022, there are about 0.71 vehicles per capita in North America, which means for every thousand people, you'll have about 710 cars. That's compared to 0.52 in Europe, 0.22 in South America, 0.18 in the Middle East, 0.14 in Asia, 0.05 in Africa, and interestingly, 0.05 in Antarctica as well, which basically means there are something like 50 vehicles per 1,000 people in both Africa and Antarctica. Though, of course, the overall population numbers in these regions are dramatically different. So, recalling that there are 0.71 vehicles per capita in North America overall, there are 0.89 per capita in the U.S. So for every thousand people, there are about 890 vehicles in the United States. And an interesting fact, the next most car-happy country on the planet, as of early 2022, is New Zealand, which has almost as many cars per person as the U.S., coming in at 0.88 vehicles per capita. Which makes sense, actually, as it's another country with relatively few people for the land mass they occupy. Notably, these figures cover cars and trucks and station wagons, not two-wheeled vehicles like motorcycles. In some parts of the world, little motorbikes make a lot more sense in terms of cost and fuel and infrastructure. So while in Taiwan, there are only 0.3 four-wheeled vehicles per capita, there are 0.67 motorcycles per capita, which is a lot of motorcycles. All of which is to say there are a lot of vehicle ownership and use patterns out there, which makes sense for different national and environmental setups. In the U.S., there are a lot of personal vehicles, and thus, although the annual number of deaths attributed to cars, which have been measured in the tens of thousands per year since 1918, are substantial, they've been surprisingly low for the amount of car usage going on in the country for a little over a decade now. In 2005, there were 43,510 deaths, but by 2009, that was down to 33,883 nearly 10,000 fewer deaths per year. And that figure stayed in the 30,000 range until 2020, which again was a year defined in part by a global pandemic that dramatically reduced the amount of traffic on the road. Explanations for this increase in car-related deaths vary, but some traffic experts have said it seems like the lack of congestion on roads, the reduced traffic, may have led to speedier driving. People could drive faster because they weren't stuck behind any other cars. And as a consequence, more people were traveling at higher speeds, so more accidents happened. And accidents that may have otherwise led to injuries led to deaths because of those higher speeds. It would also seem that in 2020 compared to 2019, more drivers who ended up in accidents were not wearing their seatbelts. And the thinking here is that there might be a selection bias at play where fewer people were on the road going out and doing things in general because we were in the midst of a pandemic with no vaccines yet and a fair bit of risk anytime anyone did anything in public. Thus, a higher percentage of the people on the roads were folks who had an inbuilt higher tolerance for risk. 
or in some cases, maybe even a lessened respect for the rules and safety measures. And so in addition to being out on the road, maybe driving somewhat recklessly in this new traffic-free environment, they also weren't wearing their seatbelts, which is a behavior that's very strongly linked to horrible outcomes if an accident or crash occurs. Some psychologists are now thinking that part of the catalyst for these heightened numbers might also be anger-related, as when we are stressed and afraid, as has been the case to varying degrees for many of us during the past few years, we're also more prone to lashing out. And when behind the wheel, that might mean we become more aggressive, more likely to pick fights with strangers in other cars who we perceive to be driving too slow or in some other way offending us. And this effect may be amplified by the social disengagement, the lack of interpersonal contact, at least compared to pre-pandemic days, many people have been struggling with. The other big story here, and this was referenced in the headline of that Times piece, is that it's not just vehicle drivers who are dying in these car accidents. It's other people, it's cyclists, it's pedestrians, it's bystanders, and other folks who just happen to be near roads and cars at the wrong moment. And I mentioned that the U.S. has done relatively well in some regards over the past decades, at least compared to where we were back in the Wild West days of seatbelts not being standard in cars. But in terms of killing pedestrians and cyclists, the U.S. has sucked pretty bad for a really long time, essentially since the beginning of cars. It's useful context, I think, to mention that the term jaywalking in the U.S. means walking across a street in a non-designated area. So rather than using a crosswalk, if you just walk from one sidewalk to the opposite sidewalk, you're jaywalking. And in some jurisdictions, that's actually a crime that could earn you a fine. The term jaywalking was coined back in the horse-drawn carriage era to refer to someone who was new to the city. A jay was a yokel or a rube, someone from the country who didn't know how the city worked and who thus clogged up traffic with their seemingly slack-jawed meandering, which ensured that they were always in everyone else's way. The term was applied in some other contexts as well, throughout parts of the U.S., usually to refer to J-drivers who didn't drive their carriages or early automobiles on the right side of the road. But by the 1920s, it was adopted by automobile companies and interests to basically start painting anyone who used the road and who wasn't in a vehicle as some kind of idiot and maybe even a criminal. Signs went up all over the place telling people not to jaywalk, and most of them leveled scorn and ridicule on anyone who was uncivilized and ignorant enough to not realize that roads were for cars, not for people, which was actually in opposition to the law at the time, which said that everyone had an equal right to use the roads and must legally avoid causing anyone else harm when using them. But over time, our norms adjusted, and so did the laws to generally favor vehicles over any other type of traffic. This is relevant today because the U.S. is seeing a huge surge in pedestrian injuries and fatalities caused by cars, which in some places is higher, even double, compared to the surge in injuries and fatalities for people driving their vehicles. New Jersey just saw its highest number of pedestrian fatalities since 1989, 
Utah's pedestrian death rate was up 22% in 2021, and in Texas, where they saw more deaths on local roadways than any time since the 1980s, in 2021, their number of pedestrian and cyclist deaths reached new all-time highs. Overall, across the U.S., it's estimated that pedestrian fatality rates were up around 21% based on vehicle miles traveled in 2020 compared to 2019, and 2019 numbers were already up 51% compared to 2009 numbers. Early estimates from 2021 data suggests that we'll see another increase once those numbers are confirmed and tabulated. This is a big increase compared to earlier year-over-year trends, but it also aligns in terms of overall trajectory with recent historical data. Car accidents that kill pedestrians are up 46% over the past decade in the U.S., and that's compared with 5% for crashes overall. As with anything else, there's thought to be a number of variables influencing these figures, but among them is the ever-increasing size of vehicles that are popular in the United States, with many of the most successful models in recent years being large trucks and SUVs that are heaviest, where they come into contact with human beings they strike. We've also seen a steady creep of U.S. cities favoring more car-friendly policies. Pretty much everything west of the Mississippi River was built with the car in mind, so cities have sprawled more, losing the density and human scale that we're more likely to see in some other countries and in the U.S. Northeast. And that sprawl tends to favor large highways and roads, gobs of parking lots and driveways, and a whole lot of other vehicle-favoring accoutrement at the expense of infrastructure optimized for humans and smaller, human-powered vehicles like bikes. Also worth noting here is that although the number of pedestrians and cyclist deaths are up overall, they're not evenly distributed across the population. Older adults, aged 50 and up, but even more so those over the age of 75, are at particular risk of dying after being struck by a vehicle in the U.S. And from 2010 to 2019, black people in the U.S. were struck and killed by vehicles at a rate 82% higher than that of white non-Hispanic Americans. That rate is even higher for American Indian and Alaska Native people, who were struck and killed at a rate of 221% higher than white non-Hispanic people. This suggests that on top of the overall bundle of issues that are leading to higher death rates amongst pedestrians caused by drivers, some areas have infrastructure, rules, and norms that make such deaths even more likely. And such infrastructure rules and norms seem to be disproportionately located in areas where these minority groups live. This suggestion is backed by further data showing that people who walk in lower-income neighborhoods are three times more likely to be killed in this way than folks walking in higher-income communities. Part of why this seems to be the case is that a lot of lower-income communities in the U.S. don't have sidewalks, or they don't have well-maintained sidewalks while higher-income areas typically do. We also see lower speed limits in higher-income areas, and such areas are more likely to have other safety measures in place, like shoulders between driving lanes and sidewalks, and well-maintained curbs, signage, and crosswalks. They also tend to have driveways and garages, so parked cars aren't lining the streets, increasing congestion, and the likelihood drivers will hit something or someone. It's notable 
that the lowest car and pedestrian fatality rates in the U.S. are in New England, in the northeast part of the country, where cities were built to be human scale rather than car scale, and are often dense enough that people can walk or bike rather than drive, and thus driving, while still common, tends to be less necessary and slower. The vast majority of car-related injuries and deaths occur in the U.S. South, in both cities and more rural regions, where regulations tend to be looser, distances tend to be greater, and speeds tend to be higher. And at some point, the issue of speed becomes core to this conversation, as a pedestrian who's hit by a car that's traveling at 23 miles per hour, which is very slow, has a 10% chance of dying while a car moving at 32 miles per hour, which is still quite slow, driving through a small neighborhood speed, has a 25% chance of dying. That goes up to 75% when the car is moving at 50 miles per hour. There are many efforts aimed at reducing these numbers, and they approach the issue from a few primary directions. One is that of regulation and lawmaking lowering speed limits alongside the introduction and maintenance of infrastructure like sidewalks and crosswalks and road shoulders and curbs and traffic signals and signs. But another approach, which also involves regulation and lawmaking, is focused on evolving the nature of the infrastructure used based on the best available data and what seems to be working elsewhere. The concept of complete streets, for instance, suggests that we should build our streets to account for everyone who's using them, including cyclists and pedestrians, and we should build them in such a way that all these stakeholders are equally favored and safe. A truly complete street by this standard will not prioritize cars at the expense of everyone else. It includes well-maintained infrastructure for cyclists and pedestrians and the drivers of vehicles. This can be a big ask in some cases, as it's not cheap or easy to make these types of changes. But the concept scales up and down to account for the diversity of scales and locations. And at all sizes, it should theoretically bring a similar level of safety and utility wherever it might be implemented. Notably, some areas experience political pushback against this type of concept because it seems like a move that favors pedestrians and cyclists at the expense of car drivers, though arguably it just brings everyone into better alignment and rebalances the favor that cars currently enjoy. Finally, there's movement within the autonomous car space, a technological solution. Though the enthusiasm and optimism of five years ago has been tempered by the realization that although we're at maybe 95% of where we need to be to have safe, efficient, driverless robot vehicles zip-zooming around our streets and highways, that last 5% is both vital for safety and effectiveness and incredibly difficult and expensive to achieve. That said, fully autonomous vehicles logged more than 4 million miles on California roads alone last year, and another 25,000 miles on top of that were driven by completely driverless vehicles. So the car drove itself, and there wasn't a human driver sitting there waiting for something to go wrong, at which point they could take over. And there were such drivers for those other 4 million miles. That latter case, though, 
is the ideal many autonomous vehicle companies are aiming for because it would open up a whole new set of options in terms of vehicle types and business models because drivers wouldn't be necessary and they could keep these things running continuously all day and all night, pausing only to recharge and maintain the vehicles. But they're also desirable because of the presumed safety benefits. And safety is the big pitch point for many of these companies because theoretically, if they can get these vehicles where they want them in terms of development, they'll be in a good spot to reduce our yearly automobile-related death rate and perhaps even get it down to something close to zero. And this is possible, at least in theory, because these things would never get tired, would never be angry, would never be intoxicated, and would learn from the experiences and mistakes of every other car on the road in real time, while also being in contact, real-time wireless contact with every other vehicle in existence. Under such circumstances, if everything goes according to plan, such vehicles would be super safe compared to what we have now, because what typically makes vehicles not safe today are humans and the way we interact with other vehicles and our environment. And these software-piloted vehicles would be consistently and ideally able to optimally engage with the same, again, in theory. There are still quite a few problems to be solved in this space, though, including the fundamental issue of ensuring each vehicle can accurately detect and track everything happening in its environment. They should be great at this eventually, especially compared to human beings who can only see things within a very finite focal range out in front of our eyes, while a robot car can see everything in 360 degrees and keep track of nearly countless numbers of variables within that range. They're getting better and better at understanding the relationships between the things they detect as well. At the moment, though, these vehicles still have a large number of what's called disengagements, which means the human safety driver sitting there behind the wheel waiting for something to go wrong has to take over because the car gets confused. For Waymo, which racked up more than half of those autonomous driving miles in California last year, their drivers had to take over once every 7,800 miles or so, while drivers for Cruise, a similar company, had to take over every 42,022 miles, which is a vast improvement over their previous year's performance, which required a driver take over every 28,520 miles. And that is all pretty good, but for regulatory and public perception purposes, it needs to be better. Unfortunately, there is not an industry-wide definition of what disengagement is. And a lot of these companies are operating under substantially different regulatory and environmental circumstances. So the companies and their products are difficult to compare directly. And though these companies make a lot of upbeat marketing claims, we don't really know right now how they're progressing using objective metrics and how long it might be before these types of cars are common on the road, if indeed they ever are. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Clara and the Sun by Kazu Oishigoro. This is a piece of speculative fiction, science fiction if you prefer, from the perspective of a robot playmate for children 
which is interesting in the world building that it does, but also just a delight in terms of the philosophical undertones of it all and what the world looks like and the understanding of the world that this robot has as a consequence of who she is and what she is and her dynamics, her relationships with other robots and other people and the world in which she exists. I don't want to give away too much more than that, but it's a brilliantly written book, it's a pleasure to read, and it brings up some interesting questions as well within the context of the story. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Clara and the Sun by Kazu Oishiguro. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript of this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of other projects that I make, written work, podcast work, etc. at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.